0: A glissando is when an instrument moves from one note to another note totally smoothly. This is known as a gliss for short, and it's a very useful technique in every kind of music from jazz to rock to classical. One thing I like about it is that it's a musical automatopoeia. It sounds like what it is. Just like how staccato sounds staccato, glissando sounds like a glissando! to strong songs a podcast about music i'm your host kirk hamilton and as always i'm so glad that you join me to talk about music with glissandos music with portamentos and sometimes music with both glissandos and portamentos because they're not really all that different we've got a song with one of the most famous glissandos of all time to talk about in this episode i am very excited to get into it so find a comfortable place to sit turn up the volume and enjoy this show A couple of episodes ago, I talked about portamento with regard to synthesizers and how portamento or glide is sort of similar to what you might describe as a glissando. And the difference between a glissando and a portamento is there is a difference, but it's kind of uh, a little bit up for debate. A glissando, I believe, has individual notes where a portamento is just a smooth slide. However, if you're playing an instrument like a trombone or even a saxophone, a glissando is probably also just kind of a slide and there stops being that big of a difference. To me, a glissando is something that takes place over a longer period of time, and a portamento is a little bit shorter, but I actually kind of use them interchangeably. One fun glissando is right at the very beginning of the bridge to the Strong Songs theme song, I play a glissando on the tenor sax up to that first note. I would definitely call that a gliss. And another very famous glissando that you doubtless know is the clarinet solo at the beginning of George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. (laughs) mm <laughs> It's a very, very good glissando, but it is not the extremely famous glissando that we're going to be talking about on this episode, though I should probably do an episode about Rhapsody in Blue one day, shouldn't I? No, today we're going to be talking about a different glissando, I'm excited to get into that a couple of things up front. First of all, an announcement. I am excited to announce that at long last, Strong Songs has merch! This is something I've been setting up for a while and planning for even longer than that, but there is finally a Strong Songs merch store. You can find a link to that down in the show notes and there's not a whole ton there yet. This is a new thing for me and I'm like everything else with this show, I'm totally just doing this myself. So I kept it pretty limited at first. There are some t-shirts, some mugs, some tote bags, and some stickers all with various Strong Songs logo. There's a really cool thump pop sizzle one that I really like and I have all of this stuff around my house because I've been having samples printed so I can make sure everything looks okay and how I like it and now I have a whole lot of merch for my podcast in my house which is pretty fun. So there's the podcast art, there's Thump Pop Sizzle and there's also a very cool listener made design made by listener L.B. Morse who sent this really cool headphones design with a logo in the cable that I love. I have it on a coffee mug. I drink coffee out of it every morning and it's super cool. So anyways if you want to check out the store, get some Strong Songs merch, head on over to store.strongsongspodcast.com there's also a link down in the show notes and hey the holidays are coming up and what better gift than a mug t-shirt tote or sticker from a podcast that you and your loved one both listen to so go check out the store and of course everything that you order helps support me making this show the other thing that i want to talk about just really quickly is live music venues The fallout from COVID has had a deleterious effect on a lot of different things, but the performing arts are one of the things that have been most affected. I've talked in the past about how a lot of musicians are really struggling right now. I know people are going out of their way to support musicians by buying music off of Bandcamp instead of just streaming it, ordering merch, uh, supporting musicians in as many ways as they can. But live music venues actually also really need help. So it's just something to bear in mind. If you have a venue that you really like in your area, go to their website and see how they're doing. A lot of venues have sort of opened up donations avenues so you can give them money to help them stay in business and a lot of them are going to need it because they just haven't been able to have any revenue streams this whole time and there's going to be a lot of closures it's going to be really tough on local music scenes and just kind of heartbreaking in general it'll be hard to even really gauge what this is going to cost the music scene at large so just something that i wanted to get you all thinking about anything that you can do to support venues or festivals can make a difference okay it's time to get into this episode's song This year on Strong Songs we've talked about a lot of bands, from Led Zeppelin, to the Cardigans, to Rush, to Fleetwood Mac. What makes every band interesting isn't just the individual members, it's the collective. It's the way that the brilliance of each individual member is refracted through the prism of their collective creativity. One band member might write a song, but another member might be the one who comes up with the counter melody, or the hook, or the bass line, the thing that ties the song together and elevates it from good to great. Sometimes that's how it works, and sometimes it's a little bit more dramatic than that. Sometimes one band member writes a song that's a lush dreamscape, and the other band member writes a completely different song. And then they get together and they decide to take the two songs and kind of mash them together, just smash them into one another. And so they hire an orchestra to kind of do the smashing, and as the orchestra builds Builds until they can't go any higher. You snap out of the dream, and the whole thing comes
1: together. Woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head.
0: Wake up everyone, get ready.
1: Found the way downstairs and drank a cup. And looking up, I noticed I was late.
0: It is finally time for Strong Songs to talk about John, Paul, George, and Ringo, better known as the Beatles, and while there are a lot of their songs that I could have talked about in this episode, in the end, I had to go with their 1967 epic, A Day in the Life. There is so much to talk about with this song, widely seen as the greatest or definitely one of the greatest Beatles songs ever written, and I think that it's seen that way for a number of reasons, but I know why I think this song is great, and that's because it so clearly reflects the two songwriting voices that most strongly define the Beatles, John Lennon and Paul McCartney.
1: Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away.
0: Most Beatles songs were credited to Lennon-McCartney, that's for legal reasons, and while there was some collaboration on a lot of their songs, most of them were written by one or the other, or they are written by George Harrison. For example, Yesterday, the absolutely fabulous song you're hearing right now, was mostly written by Paul McCartney. I know it's bad form him to pick favorites, but McCartney is my favorite songwriter in the Beatles. He wrote some of my favorite Beatles songs, including Eleanor Rigby, Hey Jude, Blackbird, the list goes on. Now, I really do love Paul McCartney, and I love Paul McCartney songs, but there are a lot of Beatles classics that were written by John Lennon as well. For example, this one, Strawberry Fields Forever.
2: Let me take you down I'm going to strawberry field.
0: They're actually very different songwriters. McCartney is this methodical, strong melodist who's always arranging his songs in these kind of brilliant, little, clever ways. Where Lennon is a much more organic and kind of free-flowing composer who writes and sings in a very different style. The synthesis of those two very different compositional styles, along with George Harrison's also different style of writing, is what makes the Beatles the Beatles. Thing is, I usually have that experience on a macro level over the course of the album because each song is so clearly created by a different person. A Day in the Life is the rare exception that really and truly reflects multiple voices at the same time. And that to me is what makes this song so special. There are some other songs that were co-written by Lennon and McCartney, but this is the one where you can really hear both of their individual voices voices and then they're knitted together in such creative ways it it does so many cool things with studio tricks and that orchestra there's so much going on this song broke so much new ground in 1967 when it came out and there is just a whole lot to talk about I will say up front that this episode does contain some light discussion of psychedelics. It's not something I get super deep into, but I could not mention it at all when talking about this band and this album. I will also say up front, I'm actually not much of a Beatles expert when it comes to their lives and the full story of the band. Um, I didn't really grow up listening to the Beatles. I think that that's kind of at the root of what makes the Beatles so important to so many people is that their parents listened to the Beatles, and my parents didn't really. Um, we mostly listened to James Brown and old Soul records. That was my dad's style, so that was the music I I grew up listening to. And as a result, I just never really got deep into the Beatles in that way that you do when you want to go watch documentaries and read books about a band. I have, of course, come to really appreciate their music. There's just some incredible songs. Some of my favorite songs ever are Beatles songs. A lot of the ones that I just mentioned in this one is included. And I do want to recommend a podcast that people should go listen to. It's a podcast called You're Wrong About. It's hosted by two journalists, Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs. They kind of go back and revisit and sort of excavate the current events. Events of the past. It's a lot of things that people in my kind of generation, millennials or elder millennials, lived through in the '90s and the '80s, but also things that predated us. And they did an episode on Yoko Ono. I think the title is something like, "Quote: Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles." Unquote. And it's sort of debunking the idea that Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles, which is certainly something that I heard even when I didn't really know the Beatles that well, and I certainly didn't know uh, who Yoko Ono was. It's a really good episode because it takes a really broad view and a very interesting view of the Beatles and John Lennon in particular. And while it gets into their personal lives it also kind of gets into their creativity and it explains a little bit why Sgt. peppers was this collaborative apex for the band and why after that they kind of went off into these more songwriting silos and each song was just much more clearly a george song or a john song or a paul song so it's really good i recommend listening to it i'll put a link to that episode down in the show notes it's also just a good podcast totally worth checking out
2: a crowd of people stood and stared. Seeing his face
0: So, A Day in the Life is the closing track on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was recorded and released in 1967. It features John Lennon playing guitar, piano, and some other instruments, and singing Paul McCartney playing bass, piano, and singing. It's also got Ringo Starr playing drums. Ringo's drum parts are really interesting on this song. We're going to talk about those. The only Beatle who is not really reflected in this recording is George Harrison, who typically played guitar with the Beatles, is an amazing singer and songwriter. He wrote some of my favorite Beatles songs, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, Here Comes the Sun, um he just he only plays maracas and some percussion on this track and just isn't really heavily featured so it goes it's an amazing recording even though George isn't on it Sgt. Peppers was produced by the legendary record producer George Martin, who also wrote the string arrangements, and the version that we're going to be talking about is the 2017 remix, which was actually remixed by Martin's son, Giles Martin, and this remix is pretty amazing. I'm no purist when it comes to the Beatles, but I think the remix sounds really good, and that is what I'm going to be basing this analysis on. Also, side note, I bought the 50th anniversary version, which is the remixed version, on vinyl, and it sounds really amazing. It's a super cool vinyl. I recommend it if you're any kind of a vinyl collector or you're into vinyl at all. So, like I said, Sgt. Pepper's is a concept album. The idea is that there's this band called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and it's the Beatles, but it's not the Beatles, and there's even, like, a fake audience, and they do an intro song and an outro song, and A Day in the Life actually comes after they play their imaginary set on the album. A Day in the Life is the grand closer of the album, and it kind of stands apart from the rest of the concept, if that makes sense, or at least that's how I always hear it. So after all the other songs, this is how the album ends, with a sort of a closing number that the band performs. beatles were not performing this music on stage but you can picture them on stage as this sort of imaginary band and they start here in the key of f they're kind of just rocking out it's a pretty standard chord progression in f though this song has a nice key change where it goes up a step into g and then they kind of ride it home in g to the end And as the imaginary audience cheers, John Lennon's acoustic guitar fades in with a new chord progression. And he starts to sing.
2: I read the news today, oh boy, about So in a
0: world where Sgt. Pepper's band is performing for a sold-out crowd full of screaming fans, I guess you could kind of picture A Day in the Life and the beginning of A Day in the Life as the beginning of the encore section. You know, the lights come down and one member of the band begins strumming an acoustic guitar while audience members take their lighters out. Ah, it's pretty nice to imagine a crowd full of people seeing live music right now, isn't it? So I guess you could picture it that way. I actually kind of imagine A Day in the Life existing outside of the world of the performance. Um, that's sort of the fictional performance. That takes place on this album But you can see it however you want Just like you can interpret these lyrics however you want
2: I read the news today, oh boy, About a lucky man
0: It's a classic melody over a pretty straightforward chord progression. We are in the key of G here, and it's one of those walk-down deals where uh, a song starts on one in root position with the bass playing the root of the one, in this case a G, and then it kind of walks down, so it goes from a G to a B minor over F sharp, with that F sharp in the bass, to an E minor, then it kind of walks down. Sometimes Paul will walk down to an E minor over D, sometimes he just stays on E, and then it walks down to a C major. From there, it walks down yet again to like a C major over B, which is really just E minor uh, over B in that sort of second inversion of an E minor chord, to what sounds to me like an A sus2. It kind of doesn't quite sound like an A major, but they really emphasize that too. The B on the A chord, you'll hear it in the piano. And that makes it kind of sound like an A sus2 chord to me. So that's at the end of the phrase. I mentioned that Lennon was playing guitar on this, and that is true. John Lennon wound up recording the acoustic guitar on this, not George Harrison, who's just playing maracas on this track and on this section, so he could be playing the guitar part, but it's kind of in the background, it's not foregrounded in that way that a lot of Harrison's electric guitar parts are foregrounded, and that is just Lennon strumming along. It's a pretty straightforward chord progression on a just standard-tuned acoustic guitar, just because it's, you know, a lot of G, B minor, E minor, C. Even that A sus 2 is a a really easy thing to finger on the acoustic guitar, so you don't need great acoustic guitar skills to be able to play this song. So the thing that makes this whole section work for me is the melody. The melody is doing that contrary motion I've talked about so many times where it's moving up while the chord progression is moving down. I love that final fifth made the grade from that E up to a B that's really emphasizing that sus2 on the A which is a nice sound I mean the sus2 chord just sounds good in general but having the melody bring out that two the B is a nice way to really emphasize the differentness of that chord and what makes it sound distinct a lucky
2: man who made the grade. And though the news was rather sad Have to learn.
0: That's the second half of what I think of as the verse. There are a bunch of verses in this song and it kind of is two halves where each half is pretty much the same but then they end a little bit differently. So the second half of the verse moves, for starters, through the same descending chord progression, G major, B minor over F sharp, E minor, then that walk down to C major. Then it does something very different. It goes up to an F major, which is a strange place to go. That's sort of a up a half step from the E minor that it resolves to. So it gives it that sort of shimmying half step sound where you go to C major, then to F major, and then to E. They then repeat that one time, which adds a kind of a tag to the verse. And by ending the second phrase that way, it just it adds a sense of finality to the overall verse and makes you realize, okay, we've now reached the end of the verse. It's time for the second verse.
2: Well, I just had to learn.
0: So here comes that F. It goes C, the then
2: boyfriend.
0: F, to E minor.
2: Mind out in a car. The second
0: verse it's opens the door for the fourth Beatle to enter. That's Ringo Starr on the drums mixed over there on the right. And before we get further into the tune, I want to talk a little bit about that mix and about the arrangement, because I think that is one of the interesting things about this song and about this part of the song. So if you listen to a lot of Beatles albums from the 1960s, you may notice that they're mixed a little bit differently than a lot of popular rock albums from the 1970s onward. It's always felt to me like the 70s were where mix engineers sort of agreed where things go and things became kind of standardized, where in the 60s you heard a lot more interesting mixes and in particular, interestingly panned mixes. So panning just refers to how far in the left or the right channel something is. I'm sure most of you know that. But generally speaking, you know, some things are center panned, which means they kind of appear equally in the left and the right channel. And sometimes things are panned super hard to the left and super hard to the right. And there's a whole spectrum of left to right panning that creates what's called the stereo image. The standard that developed over the course of the 1970s mostly related to the drums and the bass. The drums are almost always right in the middle of the mix. The kick drum will be right there in the middle, the snare drum right there in the middle, and the cymbals will be panned because the overhead mics that you put over the drums are kind of on the left and the right hand side of the drums. Those are typically panned left and right, so you'll hear the cymbals, usually those higher parts of the drum set, off to the left and the right, while the kick and the snare are right there in the middle. Toms are usually more creatively panned because you'll get drum fills that sort of go across the stereo field and that's just because toms are panned a little bit more extremely than the rest of the kit. But there's that kind of central core to the drum set. the kick and the snare drum, the thump and the pop are right in the middle. The bass is usually also in the middle. so the bass will just sit right there with the thump and the pop with the kick and the snare drum right in the middle, just holding down the bottom end of the entire mix. Lead vocals, which are actually on the top, are also usually in the middle. That's kind of the last element that's usually centered. But chordal instruments like the piano and the guitar in this case are typically panned. Also percussion instruments like George Harrison's maracas also usually panned. So you would typically hear maybe in this case with an acoustic guitar and a piano, the piano would be panned to the right a little bit and the guitar would be panned to the left a little bit. Of course, that is not how things are panned on a day in the life, but just for the sake of comparison, I'm going to do a little recreation of this verse groove with the maracas, the acoustic guitar, the piano, the electric bass, and the drums. This is just sort of a rough amalgamation of what everyone is playing, and focus on the panning. This is with the bass and the drums in the middle, the guitar, the maracas, and the piano over to the sides. This is a more modern panning and a more modern mix. (music) So it feels pretty centered, right? The drums are just kind of right there in the middle, the bass is right there in the middle. Of course, that's not what they're doing on a day in the life, and most of this album is mixed the way that a lot of Beatles albums are mixed, where the drums and the bass are actually panned, which is more old-fashioned and creates a distinct sound. And I should note that the reason that panning was still something that hadn't really been settled on in the 60s is that stereo recordings were still kind of new in the 1960s, and before that everything was mono. Indeed, there are mono mixes of a lot of Beatles recordings. You can listen to them in mono, and that doesn't really have any panning at all. Some of those actually sound really good. So we're talking about the stereo mix here, but no one had really settled on what they were doing yet, and as a result, you got some unusual mixes, or at least some mixes that would be considered unusual today. In this case, the bass and the drums are actually both panned over to the right, which puts the whole rhythm section over in the right channel and creates a pretty right-heavy focus for this mix. Unusual compared to modern recordings, but very distinctive sounding. Here's my little recreation with the panning adjusted to match the recording. It's a very different way of approaching things, and I think that when you put the bass and the drums in the middle, it actually creates a kind of a more unified sound, everything is just tied together much more clearly, and when you put them on the side, it creates a much more individual sound, and you can hear each part a lot more clearly as an individual part. So let's listen back to the recording now And just pay attention for how everything is mixed and panned Listen for how the drums and the bass are over there on the right with the piano How the acoustic guitar and the maracas over on the left Lennon's voice is right there in the middle And just pay attention to that sense of space The way that you can really hear each individual part Because they're spread out across the stereo field
2: He blew his mind out in a car Didn't notice that the lights had changed A crowd of people stood and stared
0: A couple more things I want to talk about with the sound of these opening verses. The first is just the vocals. I really like John Lennon's voice, and I think that he sounds really nice here. This is a nice part of his register. They're also using a vocal effect that a lot of singers use, and that is a tape delay on his vocals. So a tape delay, also known as a tape echo, sort of takes the original sound and then plays it again on some sort of a delay. You can adjust how long the delay is, and typically a tape delay will kind of distort the sound and deform it a little bit. It'll change the pitch a bit, which is good because it cuts down on phasing and it lets you run a kind of tighter delay so that you're not hearing this kind of weird Doppler effect as two identical signals come to you. The second one is usually a little bit modulated, maybe a little bit flat or a little bit sharp. just sounds a little bit different, which is definitely what's happening here.
2: I saw a film today, oh boy The English army had just won the war
0: The last element that I want to talk about here is Ringo Starr's drumming. Much has been written and said about Ringo Starr's drumming over the years. I'm always just struck by how specific it is. He almost never just plays like a steady standard drum part like you would hear in most other songs. He's always doing something odd, something creative. He's never putting together the thump and the pop and the sizzle in a really standard way. I mean, occasionally he will, but usually there's one missing or he's just doing something more creative. He kind of approached the drums in a just fundamentally different way than a lot of other drummers and I think that's led to some people you know criticizing his drumming and saying oh he didn't have the chops to play you know this kind of fill or this kind of a feel but I think that he was a really musical and very creative drummer. It really is partly the way that these albums are mixed that the drums always kind of stand on their own kind of pan to the left or the right a lot of the time that it, it makes me appreciate him more as an individual member of the band and a little less as the sort of bus driving Just the drummer holding the whole thing together, which is how the drummer tends to sound in more modern sounding ensembles. Like listen to this third verse as he plays underneath it. He's almost never playing a sizzle. He's playing a lot of thump and pop and some tom fills and he kind of gets into a steady backbeat with that thump pop with the kick drum and the snare but he's really leaving the sizzles to the George Harrison's maracas which are over on the left between the two of them they're playing a steady groove and the guitar is also kind of providing that subdivision but it's just much more spacious and interesting than it could have been on this tune and you keep waiting for him to go into the like steady you know backbeat standard rock groove and he just never really does it he's not willing to do it
2: Had just won the
0: war. there's still so much space you know
2: the crowd of people away
0: the beetle who's filling that space the most is actually paul mccartney on the bass he's playing a lot of really varied and interesting bass lines and something i've come to appreciate about the beatles is just how important of a melodic figure paul mccartney was on the bass i think that mccartney is a great melodist as a songwriter he's written some of the best pop melodies of all time. I think that really comes out in his bass playing a lot of the time. His bass playing is very rarely just sort of steady quarter notes or eighth notes. It's actually a lot like Ringo. I think between the two of them, they both approached their respective roles with a lot of care and creativity and specificity. It's just every bass line that Paul McCartney plays, just like every drum part that Ringo Starr plays, it tends to just feel kind of bespoke. It feels like he came up with it for this specific part, even if it also feels somewhat improvised as in this song, it just feels like he's kind of grooving, figuring stuff out as he goes and playing it. I would imagine they did a bunch of different takes, actually no, they did a bunch of different takes of this song, and I think he just found what he liked and played it, but it wasn't like, I don't think he wrote out the bass part or anything, but it's different every time, every verse he plays a different bass line. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So, a bunch of times Paul McCartney has to go from G major to B minor to E minor to C. He does that chord progression two times on each verse. There are three verses here at the top, so he does it six times just at the beginning of the song. Each of those six times is a little bit different. Sometimes they're different in really dramatic ways, sometimes they're different in subtle ways, but he plays each one differently. Let's go through them, and I'll show you what I'm talking about.
2: I read the news today, oh boy. So
0: at the very start, he's actually playing a kind of a groovy bass line. He's playing some kind of groovy eighth notes, and he walks down. He actually drops down to an A and walks up to the C to get to the C. I
2: read the news today, oh boy. The
0: next time he plays it, it's very different. Listen to this one.
2: And though the news was rather sad.
0: So super different. He walks up this time, instead of going to the B over the F sharp and walking down, he walks up to the B, and it's kind of more of a like, doom, 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 like he puts the eighth note thing away and plays longer notes. Listen again.
2: And though the news was rather sad. He
0: plays similarly on the second verse, though he does change some things, but it's largely pretty similar. This is his most restrained verse.
2: He blew his mind out in a he
0: now on the third verse, he does something very different. He actually starts down on the low G and walks all the way down to the low E, the lowest note on his bass before jumping up. So it's a very different bass line than what he played on the first two verses. I saw and then on the second half of the third verse he does something else he's never done before instead of going from the g up to the b in root position he walks down again so he does that g down to f sharp down to that low e again in the middle of the verse it's a dramatic change it doesn't sound dramatic you might not even notice it unless you were really drilling down and paying attention but it is a dramatic change from what he played the first two times at this part of the verse. A
2: crowd of people I just have to look Having rest
0: if you're going back and listening to a bunch of Beatles after listening to this episode, I really recommend focusing on Paul McCartney's bass parts. It's also fun to focus on Ringo's drum parts, but for me, Paul McCartney's bass is the thing that is just fascinating to follow from song to song to song and from album to album. He's never not playing something interesting. Okay, so we've talked a lot about this, the most lenin part of this song. Let's listen back to that third verse, which is where all of the elements are in, and see if you can hear everything that we've talked about. Listen for that chord progression, that steadily descending chord progression with the melody that moves up and down in equal measure. Listen to the way the phrases end by going up to that odd F major chord, which then moves down a half-step to E, and how that F major chord kind of stands out as a strange-sounding chord. Listen to the mix, how the drums and the bass over on the right with the piano, the acoustic guitar, and the maracas are providing a little bit more of that sizzle over on the left. Listen to Lennon's vocals and how they're using that tape delay, that tape echo, to give him a slightly bigger sound. Listen to what Ringo Starr is playing on the drums and how his drums never really settle into a steady kind of a rock groove. He's always leaving some more space than he needs to. And listen to Paul McCartney's bass lines and how they're always changing. He's moving through the chords, but he does it in a slightly different way, either with different notes or different rhythms every time. All right, ears on. Let's listen.
2: I saw a film today, oh boy, the Army had- just won the, the crowd of people away but I just have
0: to look. All right and it's time to get into that famous transition the first of two huge transitions in this song and when they broke out the studio orchestra and did that massive glissando to set up the next section in the song. I love this section. I love it for what it is and for the function that it fulfills. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But first, I just want to talk a little more technically about what's going on just musically and in the song. Lyrically, this is uh, this whole song is pretty open to interpretation. I always just have seen it as a man sort of losing his grip on reality while he sits in traffic or at least this opening part. And I feel like this song does a lot with focus where it will start kind of focusing in and then unfocusing. And this is the great unfocusing of the song. This section is where any kind of semblance of focus and structure that we had just melts away and is sort of subsumed by this growing cacophony. It is not a coincidence, I don't think, that that cacophony begins and that great melting unfocusing begins right as Lennon sings, I'd Love to Turn You On. The psychedelic experience manifested itself in Beatles music in a lot of different ways. The Beatles were fans of psychedelics and they were a big part of the counterculture and psychedelic drugs were also a big part of the counterculture. The whole idea of taking psychedelics and turning on and elevating your consciousness was something that Timothy Leary really popularized. That term, turn on, kind of became infamous among parents and in the culture at large. So when the Beatles sang, I'd love to turn you on, it's a not so subtle reference to psychedelic drugs. There are other lyrics earlier, like blowing your mind out, that could also be referring to the same thing. What's remarkable about this section is that the music begins to reflect much more directly the psychedelic experience that the lyrics are hinting at. For starters, it's just a very different character to those backup vocals that come in. I'm not totally sure who's singing this. It doesn't sound like it's just John. But the backup vocalists come in, and they're sort of panned to the sides here. And they do something really cool where everyone is singing together, but the stereo field is much broader on the vocals. And then it actually slowly narrows until it's just Lennon in the middle, singing that kind of odd, undulating note that's going in a half-step between B and C. So it's kind of... It's pretty odd and pretty cool. Let me just try to recreate it on my own with no accompaniment. And pay attention to the pan. Just listen to how the stereo field starts super wide compared to how it is right now and then kind of gradually narrows over the course of that sustained note into the middle until it's just one vocal track in the middle.
2: i love to turn you on
0: Listen to it in the actual recording. It's a neat effect and a microcosm of what they're doing in general, where in this case they're going really broad and they're unfocusing it with that wide stereo image and then focusing in as they move toward the middle. Of course, they're doing that while at the same time the band is actually beginning a much longer unfocusing. All right, all right, all right. We'll get to the big orchestral glissando in a second. Before that, though, there's a couple of things that are sort of anchoring things. There is some counting going on, for starters. That's Mal Evans. He was an assistant in roadie for the Beatles, and he did the counting on this track, so you can hear him counting sort of over in the right channel. The orchestra comes in on that half step, <clears throat> and they begin there, and then they begin their glissando. As they do that, Paul and Ringo are also holding the groove down and keeping a consistent pulse going. Ringo's up on the cymbals, he starts playing the hi-hat just on quarter notes to keep the pulse. Paul, meanwhile, actually plays a very cool bass line. He's kind of playing eighth notes, and he starts up on a C and then drops down to an F sharp. Then he begins to slowly walk up, a kind of a G major scale, or at least it starts there, but then it sort of becomes chromatic toward the end, and he eventually gets to an E, and then he just plateaus on an E, and he holds an E steady while the orchestra begins that long glissando upward. So let's listen to that, and I'm going to play piano along with Paul so you can really focus in on what he's playing because what Paul is playing in this section is probably the most grounded part in the whole band, and so it's a good thing to hang your hat on and to listen to first. Okay, so I'm going to play along with Paul. Let's listen. If you noticed, right when Paul hits that E and starts to stay put, that's kind of right where the orchestra starts to really rev up, and you get this feeling, almost like a cyclical revving feeling from the orchestra, right when he hits that E, it's when the orchestra enters glissando mode. The bass fades into the background as it pedals on that E, bum, 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 and the orchestra takes over and moves to the front. But remember that the bass is back there playing that E because it'll be important in just a couple of seconds. So the orchestra, a studio orchestra that I believe was recorded multiple times and overdubbed, begins what amounts to a big, long glissando all the way up their instruments from the very bottom to the very top. so wild. There's so much going on. And when I drill into it, I can actually hear a lot of individual musicians. My favorite is probably what I'm pretty sure is a French horn just right smack in the middle of the mix, absolutely going for it in their upper register, just pushing at the limits of how high they can play. string players kind of have an easier time of it with a big glissando because you just kind of move your finger down the neck while bowing on a single string but with an instrument like the french horn you really kind of got to do it with your chops and there comes a point where if you kind of underestimated the length of time that the glissando was going to take you reach the upper limit of your range and you're just stuck pushing up against the ceiling but actually that adds to the sense of chaos and this sort of building tension that just needs to explode because it's so up at the top the band just can't do anymore there's a maxed out feeling to it that's very very cool and that you can only get with this kind of group improvisation like that is the unmistakable sound of a room full of people making a ton of noise building and building and building launching us into the next part of the song
1: woke up fell out of bed like to comb across my head.
0: What a transition. I love it so much. It works so well on so many different levels. This is where the song wakes up. We were kind of in this dreamy world where John Lennon was singing and we were kind of in traffic with this man and maybe he was losing his mind or taking psychedelics and reality was melting away. He was falling deeper and deeper into the dream and then suddenly... Boom! Steady groove on the bass, steady groove on the piano, an alarm clock rings, Paul McCartney begins singing, it's a new day, it's a new dawn, it's a new character, the drums come in on a steady groove, and we're off.
1: Woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. Found the way downstairs and drank a cup, and looking up, I noticed
0: I was late. So we've come, of course, to the Paul McCartney part of the song. This was a separate song that McCartney was working on that they then worked into the middle of a day in the life. And this is the thing that, to me, anyways, makes this song special. Otherwise, it would be a very cool John Lennon song. But by putting a Paul McCartney song in the middle and transitioning to it the way that they do, the song is just elevated in so many different ways. So, remember how Paul McCartney played that slowly, steadily ascending bass line while the orchestra came in on that and then started the glissando? Paul kind of worked his way up to an E and then he just started playing quarter notes on an E. And he fades away in the mix, but he comes right back in on that E for this section, and this section is in the key of E. So he's kind of getting there a little bit earlier than everyone else and then just being taken over by the orchestra. But then when the orchestra hits that final high note and fades away, Paul is right there playing that E just like he was before they overtook him. I love using an orchestra in this way to take this just totally ridiculous over-the-top approach to gluing together two very different parts of a song. I do a lot of songwriting. I know a lot of my listeners do too. And if you've done any songwriting, you know that gluing together different sections, transitioning between sections is one of the most interesting and I think fun challenges in songwriting, but it is certainly a challenge. Occasionally a song will just pop fully formed out of your head and you'll write the whole thing and just everything flows into everything else and it works beautifully but a lot of times you'll wind up with one section that you really like but you're not sure where to put it or you're even recycling something that you salvaged from another song that you cut and you're like I really want to use that little hook and I could use it in this song but it's kind of in a different key well what if we change the key down and that's where the songwriter's toolkit tends to be very useful. It's where knowing a lot about harmony and different tricks that different writers and composers have used can come in handy because you'll kind of think well what are some ways that I can get from G to D flat major and then you'll run through some stuff in your head and try some stuff out on the piano or on the guitar and then you'll kind of maybe start to hone in around something that works. It's a delicate process it takes a lot of trial and error and what I love about A Day in the Life is that it totally throws that out the window and doesn't do that at all. We've got a Lennon song and a McCartney song and they need to glue them together so what do they do they just take the most maximalist approach ever we need to change the key well let's just have the orchestra obliterate any sense of tonality or key so we can clear the path for a new key we need to change the tempo well let's just have the orchestra completely demolish the tempo so that we can make way for a new tempo the kool-aid guy just kicks through the wall in the middle of this song and he's got a paul mccartney song on a boombox over his shoulder it rules and it's one of the defining moments of this
1: recording Up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head tempo
0: is now a lot faster we're a little over 160 beats per minute where we were at 80 before so it's just over twice as fast and we are now in a different key where the first half of a day in the life is in the key of g the paul mccartney middle section is in the key of e we've just got quarter notes going in the piano and the bass there just a really steady pedal on an e major that alarm clock that you hear is actually mal evans's alarm clock and uh it's a real alarm clock which is a nice sound The whole thing feels peppy and caffeinated which matches up with McCartney's opening lyrics woke up fell out of bed dragged a comb across my head it really just feels like the first half of the song was a dream and now suddenly we're in reality and we've woken up
1: woke up fell out of bed I have gotten a
0: lot of questions about this song uh, ever since I started doing Q&A episodes on Strong Songs, and they always knew that I would do an episode on this song, so I didn't really answer them, but one of the questions that I've gotten a few times is actually how to count this beginning section, and it is a little bit tricky because of what McCartney plays. However, Mal Evans is there to offer a little assist. So listen to the very end of the glissando and see if you can count and tell where one is going to be.
1: Cup, fell out of bed, the cup, thing that makes
0: it a little bit tricky to count is that Paul keeps changing octaves, but he doesn't change octaves on the ones, so you can start to kind of hear the one where the one is not actually happening. However, Mal is there to help you out. He actually says one right on the downbeat. One. And if you can just pay attention to that, you'll know right where one is before Ringo comes in on the drums. Right here it's a nice peppy peppy groove Ringo has transitioned to a sort of quarter note snare drum thing where he's not quite playing a backbeat it's almost a little bit more like a march which keeps things moving forward and matches up with those quarter notes in the piano and the bass Harmonically, it's just a vamp on E major for a little while, and then they hit D major, which is the flat 7th in the key of E, and they do that pretty cool 1-5-1 one, one thing in the piano and the bass. I really like it, especially on the first time, because Paul and John both play it together.
1: I like to comb my head. Found the way downstairs and drank a cup. And looking up, I, I was late so,
0: some very cool things there. First of all, the second part of that verse, it's this nice, just little major scale walk down from E to B, which is the five chord, and they go down to that B uh, in this section. He kind of walks down E, D sharp, C sharp, then C natural, then B, which are actually the same notes that Pink Floyd used on Money when they were kind of using that bebop scale. Uh, I talked about that on a recent QA episode. Same kind of idea here, they add that C natural as a passing tone so they can land right on the downbeat on B. On the
1: way downstairs and drank a cup. And looking up, I noticed I was late. Found my code. So that breathing there at the end of the phrase ha, ha, ha,
0: ha, ha, on the quarter notes, that might sound familiar to longtime listeners of Strong Songs.
3: Hey. Hey.
0: Yes, Jeff Lynne totally quoted A Day in the Life ten years later in his 1977 Electric Light Orchestra song Mr. Blue Sky. I did a whole episode about this song in year one, and man, what a good song that is. Mr. Blue
2: Sky
1: Please tell
2: us why you
0: Okay, 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 I could talk about Mr. Blue Sky for an hour, but wait a minute, I already did that. So go listen to that episode if you want to hear more about ELO. Though, Jeff Lynn, of course, a friend of the Beatles, that was definitely a conscious shout out to this song. And it's just fun to hear people using ha, 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 out of breath panting as a way of marking time. Looking
1: up, I noticed I was late. Found my coat and grabbed my hat. Made the bus in seconds flat.
0: So things stay pretty much the same the second time through this McCartney section, though the bass switches to just walking down from E to B. I really like how straightforward this little bass line is. There's something uh, very grounded about it that I like, but like I said, I like McCartney's bass playing in general.
3: Find
1: my coat and grabbed my hat Made the bus in seconds flat Found my way upstairs and had a smoke Somebody spoke and I went into a dream
0: And so here the song introduces yet another new section This halftime section that changes the key again And starts moving through a different chord progression And man, this song has a lot of parts so when McCartney sings, when
1: somebody spoke and I went into a dream.
0: he's kind of acting as our tour guide or as the navigator. Lyrically, he's explaining, OK, and now we're going back into dream world. It was nice for a minute there. We woke up, we had some coffee, but, you know, things were never fully settled. We were never really in this world. Somebody so it's time spoke, for things to get weird dream. again. The tempo gets cut back in half, we're into a halftime feel here closer to the 80 beats per minute that we're going during the first part of the song and the orchestra comes in too on this just big strong unison. They're moving through a kind of loping chord progression, it's moving in fifths from C to G to D to A. It's a distinct way of moving because moving in fifths always makes it sound to me like there's no set key center and you're always moving to a new location so it's a kind of a discombobulated sound to me. Like right now, underneath this as I'm talking, I'm just moving around the cycle of fifths in fifths. I usually move around that cycle in fourths. When you move in fifths, it always just sounds to me like Each new chord is home, which is actually kind of disorienting when it happens enough times in a row, like you're teleporting from home to home to home to home. So are any of them home? And I know it's this kind of relative circle of fourths or is it the circle of fifths and which one is which and do fourths sound this way or do fifths sound this way? This though, just moving from C to G to D to A, to me anyways, it has a kind of a distinct and harmonically unsettled sound. Her progression also actually makes me think of an earlier song from Sgt. Pepper's. Another very famous song, this one, a John Lennon song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And actually, in the pre chorus to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, they do a kind of similar thing, moving by fifths in actually the same key, going from a C to a G to a D. And while I don't know if this was an intentional callback, they are on the same album. It is a concept album, and it's always kind of felt like a little bit of a harmonic callback to me. I don't know you hear what i'm talking about they're not the exact same but they're pretty close given that they're both on the same album and they're both kind of about the psychedelic experience makes sense to me that the one would maybe be referencing the other anyway that's what i hear so after a couple of times through the orchestra comes up and takes over setting up the final section of the song where everything comes together
2: i read the news today
0: so john lennon comes in to restate his initial melody that first verse but with the time feel and the groove of the mccartney section of the song tying it all together in a way that should feel predictable but still feels kind of surprising every time i hear
2: it i read the news today oh boy
0: it's the same phrasing the same chords and actually in some ways it's the same tempo it's really just that ringo is playing a double time feel so it feels like it's twice as fast like the mccartney section was because it's coming after that mccartney section and because of what ringo is playing on the drums this section feels very different And here the Beatles demonstrate the age-old axiom, the only thing better than one epic orchestral glissando transition is two epic orchestral glissando transitions. So once again, we build and build and build, all working toward the most famous E major chord ever recorded. This final chord, this famous final chord, an E major chord played by Lennon, McCartney, Ringo, Martin, and Evans, all playing different keyboard instruments, with the mics turned up so hot that they could just leave the sustain pedal down and let the instrument resonate, gradually decaying as the note fades into silence. You can hear chairs in the studio squeak. It's still going. It's still going. It's an ending so good that it threatens to overshadow the rest of the amazing song. It's this brash statement ending, just making this huge chord and then leaving it, letting it ring for so long that the listener thinks that maybe something's gone wrong, but no, they're still hearing sound coming out of their speakers, so it must be on purpose, but what... What is happening? What just happened? Where are we? And of course, just as you start to get comfortable with the fact that they ended with this huge chord, if you're listening to this album on vinyl or on the new anniversary edition, you get one more little treat from the Beatles. Yes, if you listen to Sgt. Pepper's on vinyl, at the end of side B, your record will actually just begin to loop, and the needle will just go around and around and around, repeating this phrase. It's just one last trick, one last prank to leave a listener discombobulated, and that pursuit of joyful confusion is something that I love about the Beatles. As often as not, Beatles songs are meant to be more than just songs, they're meant to be experiences. And normally I'd say something more here about the band, I'd sum up their legacy, but honestly, how am I going to sum up the Beatles any better than they could sum up themselves? So, one last time, let's all just sit and listen to that final chord in all its glory. Just close your eyes and sit with it. The attack, the sustain, the harmony, but eventually the quiet, too. Those sustaining notes decay and decay and decay into silence, and we say goodbye to one of the greatest bands ever recorded. Ready? Here it is. And that'll do it for my analysis of Lennon and McCartney's A Day in the Life from Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. This one has been a long time coming. I had a great time making this episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much to all of my Patreon supporters. Patrons make this show go, and if you want to help me make this show, go to patreon.com strongsongs strong songs and find out more. Of course, you don't have to be a patron to help me make strong songs. You can also tell your friends about it. Thanks so much to everyone who's been spreading the word. And now you can also go and buy some merch. Store.strongsongspodcast.com. There's a link down in the show notes along with all my social links, newsletter, and everything else. This episode's outro soloist is master saxophonist Steve Pardo on the alto sax. Steve is also a bit of a Beatles expert, so stick around for Steve, and I will be back in two weeks with more strong songs.